Last week we saw that we should plead for God to, not last week, two weeks ago, to glorify his name by delivering his people. Today we're looking at the last few chapters of Isaiah. If 63 and 64 was the plea for God's mercy, Isaiah 65 and 66 is God's answer to that plea for mercy. In these chapters, I think we're going to see that God shows mercy as he makes all things new. We live in a world that is broken in a lot of ways. There is pain, there is suffering, there is sorrow, there is death, there is disease, famine, war, catastrophes of many kinds. And in the midst of those things, I think it's easy for us to um, wrestle with why things are the way that they are. In the case of the people of God, the Israelites, the reason that disaster had come upon them was specifically because of their idolatry, which we're reminded of here. And yet, in the midst of their idolatry, in the midst of God bringing judgment on them, He does not destroy them utterly, and He still shows mercy, and He preserves a remnant. And so that's the first thing I think we see from chapter 65, that God shows mercy to rebels as He preserves a remnant in the first 16 verses here of chapter 65. God reaches out, first of all, in mercy to rebels. In verses 1 through 7, he says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. God was willing to be sought and to be found, but his people would not seek him or find him. So it's as though God is saying, come here. And they're running away and they're ignoring him and they're refusing to come. Then in verse 2, it says, or uh, rather in verse 3, people pushed them away. They offered sacrifices in gardens, burned incense on bricks, sat among graves, and spent the night in secret places, ate swine's flesh. The broth of unclean meats was in their pots. And yet at the same time said, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I am holier than you. So here are people who are committing rampant idolatry. They're offering incense to foreign gods, they're eating meat that God said not to eat. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating a pig, but God had specifically said to them, don't do that. And so the fact that they're doing it, particularly in worship of other gods, is a, a double insult to God, because he said, don't do it and worship me, and they did it and worshiped other gods. And so that imagery is going to come up again in chapter 66. And so because there are people that God says, come to me, and they said, no, and because God said, here's how I want you to live, and they said, we're going to live this way instead, but then have this pretense of holiness, God's response is that you will reap what you have sown. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. And so when it has that imagery, it reminds me of the uh, place, I think it's in the Psalms, where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes, right? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then overlaid against that picture of hope, God is the God of the hills and of the valleys. He made the whole world, is this picture of corruption and idolatry and just stubborn refusal to come after God. They should be worshiping God and looking to him as the ruler of all creation and instead they go to the mountains and the hills and they worship in secret all of these strange gods 
with immorality and impurity and just all sorts of uncleanness. And God's response is, to the degree that you have sown iniquity and idolatry and disobedience, you are bringing in corresponding measure judgment upon yourselves. Even in the midst of that judgment, God preserves a righteous remnant. Now, the idea of a remnant we see a number of times, particularly in the prophets, but throughout Scripture. Um, it's this idea that even though the majority of the people in a particular nation or time period are going their own way and refusing to follow after God, God always has at least a handful of people who are following after him. In Genesis, you have Cain, who's rejecting God. You have Abel, who's following God. Cain kills Abel. It looks like the godly line is done. God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. You see someone like Jacob. Esau just commits uh, sin by marrying idolatrous women and going his own way and worshiping idols and all these other sorts of things. And Jacob's not much better as a person, and yet God transforms him and preserves in him this remnant, his family preserved from famine, sent down to Egypt, built into a mighty nation. But then that mighty nation of Israelites that comes out of the land falls into idolatry, and the vast majority of them are worshiping idols. We see this, for example, in the time of Ahab. Elijah's convinced he's the last person following God in the whole nation, right? What's God's response? There are yet 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, percentage-wise, I don't know exactly what that was in terms of the whole nation of Israel, but let's just throw a number out there and say it was 100,000. 7% isn't much, but it's a lot more than one out of 100,000, right? And so, throughout history, God preserves a remnant. Isaiah and his family stand as part of that remnant. Hezekiah, even though the majority of people are going astray into idolatry, and even some of the ones that participate in Hezekiah's reforms, still either they or they, their descendants go back to idolatry as soon as he stops reigning as king, which is why God brings the judgment about 100 years later, and the nation is carried away into captivity. God continues to preserve a remnant. He says, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. It's almost as though there's this picture of a vine and a bunch of the grapes on it are rotten or dried out or worthless, but there's one good bunch of grapes. Now, we might be tempted to say, just get rid of the whole plant, right? But in this instance, God is saying, I'm going to preserve, even if it's that one small handful, I'm going to preserve it, and then I am going to Give them an inheritance, verse 9. I'll bring forth offspring from Jacob. My chosen ones will inherit it. My servants will dwell there. Sharon, a pasture land for flocks. The valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. And so there is this fascinating intersection between God saying, I am the one who's preserving these people and choosing them out for myself and producing them, and the people being the ones who are supposed to be seeking God. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to this. From God's perspective, who sees the whole thing, he's the one who's making it possible for them to seek him. He's the one who's upholding them. He's the one who's creating faith in them, all of those things. From our perspective, what does God call us to do? Not to create faith in him, not to uphold ourselves in holiness, because we can't do those things ourselves, but rather God calls us to 
Seek after him. Verse 10. Not all would be destroyed. Offspring would be raised up to inherit God's blessing, and God's remnant would dwell in a rich pasture. We see this in verses 8 through 10. But then God not only preserves a righteous remnant, but he gives those who worship destiny to a destiny of death. We see this in verse 11. You who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for destiny, for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. There are people, idolaters, who are rejecting God, forgetting the temple, and worshiping the fates, if you will, right? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a song that's sometimes used as soundtracks for different things, and the words of it are, O Fortuna. O Fortuna. Dun, 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 dun. And you might be familiar with that. It's basically a hymn of praise to the Roman god Fortune, right? I'm not saying if you listen to it, you're evil or that you're worshiping fortune. I'm just saying these gods that we think of um, in terms of that all the nations would worship, they didn't just suddenly crop up in like AD 500 or in the last 50 years. Like the Romans and the Greeks and all these other people worshipped at least the concept of these gods of fate and destiny, even back in the time of potentially Isaiah. And there were those concepts not only from the Romans and the Greeks, who maybe were not in prominence at this time, obviously, but the other peoples worshipped this idea of gods who sort of control the future and the fates of men, right? And they would worship them in connection with drunkenness and with incense and with orgies and parties and all sorts of things like this. And so to people who would worship the fates instead of God who controls your fate, here's what he says. You fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. Your God is destiny and your destiny is the sword. Your God will turn against you. So they are destined for the sword and they are going to worship even as they die. You will bow down to the slaughter. You worship destiny and you receive a sword. You bow down to idols and you bow down as you die, as other nations come in and take you out. Why? Because they refused God out, God's outstretched mercy, did not listen to God's call and chose evil. Because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. You did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. And so to even those of God's people, the Israelites, who worship these idols and refuse to repent as God calls in mercy over and over and over again to them, their idols would turn against them, and worshiping them, they would die. Which I think ought to call to mind some imagery from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, right? In the day in which you eat of it, dying you will die. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, worshipped Satan, worshipped self, and chose to eat the fruit that God said don't eat, dying they died. When God's people here refused God, did what God said not to do in terms of consuming corrupt flesh and unclean animals and all those sorts of things, God says, in your false worship, dying you will die.
talk about the hope that is brought forth in just a moment here, but I think the sobering reality of that should set in that God's attitude toward worshiping false gods has always been the same throughout Scripture. I am the source of your life. I am the source of your hope. I am the source of your existence. If you reject me, your gods will fail you and they will kill you. We tend to think that worshiping an idol just means that life will be bad for a little bit because God will be upset with us and then everything will be okay. But there are many things which we worship that destroy us. Some people worship money and it destroys their lives and their families and their futures. Some people worship pleasure and it destroys their health and potentially even their mental capacities. Some people worship feeling good and they become trapped in cycles of, of addiction and being enslaved to various things. Some people worship sleep and their life falls apart around them. The reality is there's any number of idols that we can pick but those idols destroy us. And that's the point that God is making to the people here. God contrasts the fate of his remnant with the fate of idolaters in verses 13 through 16. The remnant will eat and drink and rejoice while the rebels are hungry and thirsty and ashamed. The remnant will shout for joy, but the rebels will cry and wail as they die. The rebels will have their name cursed, but the remnant will be called by a new name, verse 15. And those who are blessed in the earth will be blessed and swear by the God of truth as old things pass away and all things become new. The hope that we see, especially as we get into the next section here, is that to the extent that Adam and Eve chose to worship Satan and self, and to die, and the people of Israel chose to worship various idols and to die, Jesus comes in his temptation, refuses to worship Satan and self, and though he dies, he lives and offers life to all who would believe in him. And so Jesus breaks this pattern that starts in Genesis, continues through the days of Isaiah, continues even into Jesus' day. Because what is Jesus' response? How, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing and you would not. Exact same response that we see here to what God is doing here. God is stretching out mercy and the people are refusing. God stretches out mercy and the people are refusing. God holds out this, this vision of a perfect earth to Adam and Eve and they say, no, we're going to go do this instead. God says to the people of Israel, if you follow me, I will bless you. And they say, no, we won't follow you. And they receive a curse. The people in Jesus' day, if you trust in the Messiah, he will come and reign over you. And they say, we don't want him. And that pattern continues to this day. And yet there is hope as we do not reject God, but as we turn to God 
God is merciful even to rebels as He preserves His remnant. But He does this, this showing mercy, as He is making all things new. Starting in verse 17, we see God creates a new heaven and a new earth. What was will not be remembered, verse 17. Uh, now, when he says not remembered, I don't think he's necessarily saying forget. Um, so, for example, in Revelation 21, when it talks about God wiping away every tear from our eyes, I don't know that he necessarily removes the knowledge of what caused us sorrow from our minds such that it ceases to exist so much as he puts it into the perspective of his plan so that we no longer sorrow in it but see his hand in it. Now, we can argue that point. That's not something that I'm absolutely convinced of, chapter and verse, that sort of thing. But I think what we have here is that there is an anticipation of this coming day in which the old things are no longer the focus of our attention. But instead, God is making all things new. What comes will bring rejoicing both for people and God alike. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. You rejoice in it. Verse 19, I will rejoice in it. There's a parallel here, I think, with what we looked at from the Psalms here recently. In Psalm 97, um, it says, Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, the Lord Most High, over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. And then he says, Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. God's intent is to create joy and gladness for his people as he preserves them and as he makes all things new. What was will not be remembered. What comes will bring rejoicing for both people and God alike. Aging and death will be changed. Verse 20, No longer will there be an infant who lives a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. The youth will die at 100, and the one who doesn't reach 100 will be thought accursed. When does this take place? Because the fact that it still refers to death seems to indicate that it is a time in which the curse of sin has not been fully taken away. And yet it points to a time in which things are restored to a creation order, like we see in the book of Genesis, where people live for hundreds of years. And I think the answer is that this is found in the intervening time period between when Satan is bound at the beginning of Revelation 20. And then um, verse 4, it says, I saw thrones, they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I think that what Isaiah is laying out for us takes place in that time period in which God has had that first great initial victory over Satan and his armies, but there's not that second great uh, battle in which it's not really even a battle. The armies gather and God breathes out fire and destroys all of them. And then, as Satan and all of the things associated with sin are cast in the lake of fire, then the eternal state begins in which there is no longer any sickness and suffering and death. And we see that in Revelation 21 and 22. 
But in this picture that Isaiah paints for us, aging and death will be changed. There are a few of you who are getting closer to 100. But I imagine you don't think of yourselves much as a youth. In this picture that's held out for us, someone who's 100 can be called a youth. Someone can live even longer than that. And that is hard for us to imagine, right? Because we see pictures of people who claim that maybe they're 120, 130, and they look like they're just barely hanging on, right? In the world in which we live today. And yet, in that day, there will be people who have strength to live life and enjoy it in youth, even past the age of 100. Think about how much different that is from what we experience now. Peace and safety will allow enjoyment for simple gifts that God has given. They'll build houses and inhabitant, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Other people won't come in and, and take them away. It says, my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. This idea of wearing out the work of your hands I think is this picture of using something long enough that it's actually fully used up. And there are things that I, you and I use. I, I know we live in an era of things that you throw away. But in an era in which people made things to last, things could go down for a number of generations right before they would be used up. But if you live long enough, even those things would eventually fall apart and be used up. And I think that's some of the picture that we see in this verse, that God grants such long life to his people in his favor and his blessing that they actually use up the things that they have made and have to make new ones. Verse 23, they're not going to labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they're the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Imagine if you could see not only your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, but their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. None of us lives long enough to see that these days. But think about the blessing of seeing generation after generation following after God and enjoying his blessing and enjoying the light of his presence. God will hear and restrain, reverse in some respects, the curse of sin. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb graze together. Can that happen right now? No, the wolf's going to eat the lamb. Can the lion, does the lion eat straw like the ox? No, the lion eats meat. And so there's an extent to which in time God is going to reverse the curse of sin. As he hears his people, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Then we come to this section that not only does God create a new heavens and a new earth, but a reminder that God needs nothing from man and yet requires proper worship. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me and a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares to the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God has the universe as his temple. The world itself cannot contain God. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, right? Maybe you have a footstool that you stand on or you pull out to prop your feet up. Is your footstool the earth? This gives us a glimpse of the immensity and power of God. If the earth is as a footstool to God in terms of his greatness, 
can we say we're going to build a little box and put God in it? No, we can't build a temple to contain God because God is greater and vaster than the universe that we know. And yet, to this one I will look. God has a relationship with the one who comes before him in the right way. Greater than the span of the universe knows and fellowships with one single individual. And that sums up the proper balance between God being exalted and God being near. There are people who've overemphasized God being exalted and they've said, well, we can never really truly know God. He's too far away, he's too big, he's too away from us. And then there are people who have overemphasized God being near and have said, well, he's just like us. He's as surprised as you are when there's a hurricane or a storm. He wishes that there wasn't, but what can he do? Both of those are false perspectives of God. God is not caught by surprise by what happens in the universe, and God is not so exalted well, God is so exalted, but not so distant that he doesn't draw near to those who worship him. So God needs nothing from man, but requires proper worship. He draws near to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who fears his word. But then he talks about those who fail to worship him properly. Now, they're doing the right things. Killing an ox, sacrificing a lamb, offering a grain offering, burned incense. Those are all the right things they were supposed to do. But he says, if you kill an ox, it's like killing a person. If you're sacrificing a lamb, it's like murdering a dog. If you offer a grain offering, it's like pouring out the blood of a pig on the altar, which would have been unholy and unclean. If you burn incense, it's like blessing an idol. Why? Because they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Because the people outwardly went down to the temple and offered the sacrifices, and then snuck off into the hills to worship idols. God says, I'm not going to accept this worship when you're doing all this worship, and I'm not going to accept this worship when your heart is in it and you hate me and you do what I despise. And then he says, because you have chosen idolatry, I will choose your punishments. Verse 4, I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. Why did the people of Israel worship idols? Because they were concerned about being conquered by other nations, not having enough food, not having children after them to bear their name. So they worship gods of armies, of fertility, both in terms of food and children. God said, because you worship idols that you think are going to give you security from your enemies and abundance of food and offspring, I am going to bring on you disaster from those enemies and take away your food and offspring. Why? Going back to chapter 65. I called, but no one answered. I spoke, they did not listen, and they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, those who fear him, your brothers who hate you, who exclude you, who say, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. They will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. God calls and they do not pay attention so God shouts, I am coming! Vengeance on my enemies! 
Hear God's call when it's the plea to receive his mercy, not when it's the shout of conquest. This is sort of a hopeless picture that Isaiah paints for us. People have turned aside. They worshiped idols. God brings punishment on them. But how does this fit with the making all things new? Since mankind failed to accomplish God's vision, his strong arm is going to bring it about. God births his people. Verses 7 through 9. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such things? Can a land be born in one day, a nation all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? There's this picture of God birthing a new nation, a new people, following after his son. We see that, I think, in Revelation 12, I believe it is. The woman who's with child, that the, the enemies come and oppose and try to drown her and kill her, and God protects her. God also protects his people as he births a new people for himself. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to rejoice in Jerusalem's comfort. Be joyful with Jerusalem. Rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, I extend peace to her like a river, the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. The baby screams and cries, what does the baby want? The baby wants his mother. Just as a baby is comforted by her, her mother, God will comfort Jerusalem. She, in turn, will comfort the nations. So rejoice in that comfort and find comfort yourself. Furthermore, find rest with God's people as he punishes his enemies. You'll see this. Your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. We see a picture of this in, uh, back in verse 6. God is rendering recompense to his enemies. We saw it back in 65 verse 3. These are people who continually provoke me to my face offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. We see the same sort of imagery in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in the New Testament, in which Paul says to those who face persecution and great difficulty that they should find rest in God and that they will have relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. We see this furthermore in Revelation 20, the great army that comes forth to oppose God, the last of the gathering of the idolaters, 
Satan released from prison deceives the nations. Gog and Magog gathered together like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God, again, this intersection of judgment and deliverance. As God judges the earth, it delivers his people. As God delivers his people, he does so through the judgment of the earth. God judges the wicked and gives rest to his people. So find that rest with God's people. Be one of those who obeys the gospel, who believes in God, who is on God's side, who bows the knee willingly, because all others will face his wrath and his destruction. Again, this reminder that God preserves a remnant for them. I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, chariots, litters, mules, camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. God purges the earth of what is unclean, gathers the remnant as though it is a grain offering brought to the temple in a clean vessel, consecrated for his use. And then furthermore, verse 21, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites. Think about this from the context of the Old Testament Israelites. You couldn't serve in the temple unless you're a priest or a Levite. And even then, you had a very specific job to do. You couldn't go do somebody else's job. But God is saying, not just from you, Israelites, not just from the tribe of Levi, but from all the nations of the earth, I'm going to gather to myself servants. Think about what it says in 2 Peter, that you are now to me a kingdom of priests and servants. To Gentiles, to people who did not really know God, they are now part of God's people. To people who rejected God of his own people, now restored and an opportunity for them to serve God faithfully. We see that the righteous will endure and worship even as the wicked die and find torment. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it will be from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will begin to bow before me, come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Before we see the picture of hope and beauty for God's people, we need to ponder this picture of, of death and of destruction. Jesus talks about in the Gospels that there's a place of torment apart from God where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, a place of gnawing and burning and torment. <coughs> Isaiah holds up this severe warning that there's only two possibilities. You are with God, bowing down before Him, called out, redeemed, preserved, holy, to serve Him as priests, to be united to Him as His holy bride, the other option is that you are one of the corpses laying on the field of battle, destroyed by God in his majestic conquest. 
It's a sobering reality. Great hope, but also great danger for those who refuse that hope. In Isaiah 63 and 64, the righteous see God's power against his enemies. We see how they became his enemies themselves and how those like Isaiah pled for God to deliver them before they were utterly destroyed like the pagan nations. In chapter 65 and 66, God answers their prayer. He shows mercy even to rebels and preserves a remnant. Not all of them will be destroyed. He makes all things new. What are we supposed to do with this? If God shows mercy to those who do not deserve mercy, what are we supposed to do? Show mercy. So show compassion. Show God's grace to those that we feel do not deserve it. Someone does you wrong, what did Jesus say? Go sue him and take all that he has? Go kill him and take his stuff? No. Turn the other cheek. Ask for your coat, give him your cloak. Ask for your shoes, give him that. If he says, go with me a mile, go with him too. Go above and beyond to repay good and not evil to those around you. To the extent that it lies in your power, show mercy to those all around you because God has shown mercy to you. And alongside that, take hope in the coming renewal of all things because there's going to be moments when you grow discouraged that you show mercy to those who continue to afflict you because you're following after God. Don't lose hope. Remember that God is making all things new. Let me read for you a few words here that express this. This road will be hard, but we win in the end. Simply because of Jesus in us, it's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey, even when it feels long. Find strength in each step, knowing heaven is cheering you on. We are almost home. God has shown mercy, so we show mercy. And we, when we are tempted to give up, we remember that the making of all things new is at hand. We rest in God. We take hope. We turn away from idols. We show mercy to those who are still bound up in them. We remember that God shows mercy as he makes all things new. So we show mercy and we look forward to that coming of all things new. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so many blessings in your word, glimpses of what is to come, hope for the future, the possibility of enjoying your kindness to us, 
Sometimes we're content just to have received it ourselves and we don't want to extend it to those around us. And then we become like the unfaithful, unforgiving servant who was forgiven much but failed to forgive those around him. Lord, if you show mercy over and over again to those who reject you, I pray that you would help us not to give up on those who continue to reject us as we try to point them to you. You are a faithful, loving, merciful God. You're also a God who brings about justice. And so, if we are the ones to whom you are holding out your hand saying, return to me, and we're saying, no, Lord, let us not rest comfortably because we are in a position of great danger. But if we are repentantly following you, having found your mercy and continuing to find it each day, then Lord, help us to show mercy to others. And when we are tempted to lose heart in the good that we are doing, help us to realize that the joy of your presence is at hand. Even though it feels far away, our lives are not that long. This world will not forever endure. You will come or we will go and we will be united with you and we will have the opportunity to witness the restoration of all things. And that's a glorious vision to which we should aspire. Help us to live in light of that hope and that calling this week. In Christ's name, amen.